Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS and co-host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? Um, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NEFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director with the Americas Program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. After four years of a maximum pressure sanctions campaign against Venezuela, implemented by the Trump administration, there seems to be a push from Washington to revisit the sanctions architecture. Sanctions relief has long been a priority for the Maduro regime, which also ascribes blame for all manner of Venezuela's economic woes on the U.S.-led sanctions campaign. Indeed, the conditional rollback of sanctions on the Venezuelan oil sector appears to have been a precondition for the regime's participation in renewed Mexico City talks with the opposition. However, the U.S. should be highly skeptical about pledges from the regime without concrete signs of improvement and must be able to credibly threaten that these measures will snap back in place if no progress is made or if conditions on the ground become worse. To unpack the history of sanctions on Venezuela and the motivations and prospects for the current U.S. approach, we are joined today by Carrie Filippetti, Executive Director of the Vandenberg Coalition, a nonpartisan network of foreign policy leaders dedicated to advancing a strong, secure U.S. foreign policy. Kerry previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cuba and Venezuela and the Deputy Special Representative for Venezuela at the U.S. Department of State, for which she received a Superior Honor Award and played a critical role in shaping U.S. policy towards Venezuela. In this episode, we will delve into the state of U.S. sanctions against the regime, the role these will play in the lead-up to the planned presidential elections in Venezuela in 2024, and what can be done to further pressure Maduro to make meaningful concessions at the negotiating table. Thank you for joining us today, Kerry. Thank you so much, Christopher. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. The U.S. effort to apply maximum pressure on the Maduro regime, especially through sanctions on the Venezuelan oil sector, has been extensively discussed and at times much maligned as a strategy to encourage political change. Carrie, as someone who was closely involved in formulating U.S. policy towards Venezuela, what would you say the objective of the sanctions architecture deployed in 2019 was? This is a great question. So it's often considered, quote, our policy of maximum pressure, our policy of sanctions, But the truth is that sanctions was one prong of a multi-pronged strategy designed to get to a democratic transition in Venezuela. So ultimately, our goal was that political agreement and maximum pressure, which is inclusive of sanctions, is one of many pillars upon which that was built. And so those other pillars included things like internal pressure, where we're talking about mobilization of the Venezuelan people, the support for the interim government, for example. There was also the pillar of supporting the actors inside Venezuela through humanitarian assistance, access to resources, et cetera. And then, of course, the external pressure, which included the sanctions, but it also includes asset freezes, multilateral agreements, and things of that sort. Now, it is fair to say that sanctions played a very big role within this overarching goal of getting to a democratic transition. The way in which we saw sanctions interplay in Venezuela was for a few different objectives. One is purely justice related, right? So ensuring that the regime doesn't profit from criminal activity, from human rights violations, and to protect U.S. financial markets from corruption. In particular, in Venezuela's case, the regime was stealing natural resources of the country, things like oil and gold, 
which of course belong to the people of Venezuela. Sanctions are also a warning to potential regime collaborators both inside the country as well as malign actors like China, Russia, and Iran. It increases the cost of certain activities like human rights violations. And importantly, and the way in which we saw sanctions most dominantly play was as an incentive. The idea that sanctions relief could ultimately induce cooperation in a regime that would otherwise sort of just be doing it out of the goodness of their own heart, which of course we know the Maduro regime would not do as the famous saying goes, Hope is not a strategy. So that was the way in which we saw sanctions as a critical component of this multi-pronged approach to bring a democratic transition to Venezuela. So you talk about the sanctions and the other tools and their implementation as a means to bring about a peaceful democratic change in the country. But we've heard from the regime and its apologists that the sanctions, in fact, are the cause for the deplorable state of the Venezuelan economy. Yet most informed observers know that beginning in 2014 with the plummeting oil prices, that was really the trigger for, well, and in addition, previous policies going all the way back to Hugo Chavez, but Chavez and Maduro nationalizing companies and doing a whole series of things that really tanked the economy. But they quite effectively created this notion that, no, in fact, it was the sanctions that caused the cratering of the Venezuelan economy. Can you comment on that? That's absolutely the biggest misconception that's out there. And unfortunately, that messaging did play a role in policy formation, I think, in the current administration, for example. There's sort of three ways in which I can answer this. The first is the history of Venezuela's economic collapse. The second is the architecture of the sanctions themselves and the expansive and, in many cases, unprecedented ways in which we attempted to limit the impact of those sanctions on everyday citizens. And then thirdly, there's Maduro's actions directly. So On the history, I think it's really important to contextualize. A lot of people today, when they look at Venezuela, they see it as a country in the midst of hyperinflation, the largest migration crisis in the region's history, human rights violations, arbitrary detention and torture, all of these things. But we need to remember what an incredible and powerful place Venezuela used to be. I mean, it has the largest gold and oil reserves in the world. It was the wealthiest nation in the Western Hemisphere. It had a 92% literacy rate to say nothing of its legacy of bringing democracy to the region as a whole. So as most people know, Venezuela's economy really rests on its oil industry. You know, we're talking about to the tune of over 90%, 95% of its exports. The biggest drops in Venezuela's oil production, which is a precursor for their economic decline, as you point out, has to do with a decline in Venezuela's oil production. And that started well prior to U.S. sanctions. So Maduro comes into power in 2013. We're talking about about 3 million barrels of oil per day were being produced at that time. By 2014, Maduro engaged in this campaign of persecution that forced out major directors and other leaders of PDVSA, their national oil company. Production fell pretty rapidly to around 1.7 million barrels per day. And then from 2015 to 2018, we saw oil production drop by a total of 43% and refining dropped by 90% because oil revenue was being diverted to pay off allies and loyalists, including malign actors like China. So as a result of all of these choices, again, we're talking about up until 2018, prior to the U.S. sanctions in 2019, GDP contracted by 74 percent and hyperinflation started um, as early as 2015. So that takes us now to 2019, which is when the most significant U.S. sanctions were implemented, including our oil sector sanctions. 
So just for some context, by January of 2019, that's before the start of our sanctions, which were the end of January 2019, production of oil was at 1 million barrels per day. In February of 2023, so this year, it was at 700,000 barrels per day. So U.S. sanctions is responsible for a drop in 300,000 barrels per day compared to a drop of over 2 million barrels per day because of regime mismanagement in the period prior to the sanctions implementation. So we're not the cause of the sanctions. Nicolas Maduro is. Now, on the architecture, it's important to remember that the whole point of our sanctions and our Venezuela policy is people-driven to support the people of Venezuela in their quest for democracy. So making sure we limited the impact of the sanctions on the people of Venezuela was a key consideration at all levels of the U.S. government. That's why we specifically targeted areas where regime theft had been denying the Venezuelan people the resources that were rightfully theirs, as I mentioned. But beyond that, and I'm sure we'll get into this, we had a really complicated architecture where we had some sanctions, but we had multiple general licenses to carve out spaces for people to operate in. And what is important is that when people say sanctions had a negative impact on the population, what they're really talking about isn't actually the sanctions themselves. It's something called overcompliance. So this is when banks, humanitarian organizations, other groups become so fearful of being the target of sanctions that they end up not funding things that are actually allowed, including health or human services. So this is where the Trump administration went quite above and beyond, where for the first time we had Treasury issuing media notes, we made direct calls to over 200 banks and humanitarian organizations to make it clear that they would not be the target of sanctions if they were providing humanitarian assistance. This was a key priority for our administration, and it leads to that third component, which is Maduro's actions. So how did he use the resources he did have even during the sanctions period? Well, any diesel they had wasn't going to power ambulances. It was going to Cuba. It was going to China, Russia, and Iran, which were receiving a huge percentage of Venezuela's refined products. It's really impossible to estimate, but the closest people have come, and this is probably conservative, is over the last 10 years, we're talking about 300 to $400 billion worth of theft from the regime. For example, the theft by the former oil minister, Tarek Al-Assami, was in the tens of billions alone. In 2020, we actually sent a letter to the Maduro regime asking them to please provide examples of where humanitarian aid was not able to be delivered because of U.S. sanctions or overcompliance. And they gave us a list. And of that list, all but one had been prior to 2019, which means our sanctions had nothing to do with it. And then the last one had to do with the delivery of HIV medication, where we had evidence where it was not our sanctions, but in fact, a inability of the regime to offload the material from the ships that were delivering it. And we had actually sent multiple letters to the regime encouraging them to do so. So again, sanctions did not cause Venezuela's economic collapse. The one thing they did do that hurt our cause is that they gave the regime an argument, which was a false one, but an argument nonetheless, that the U.S. was to blame. And unfortunately, many intelligent and well-meaning and well-intentioned actors in the U.S. and abroad bought into that and became kind of unwitting spokesmen for a dictator. The U.S. has begun paring back some of the most significant sanctions, especially those targeting the oil sector, by authorizing Chevron to begin lifting oil from its joint ventures in Venezuela and exporting it to the U.S., even though the company still is prohibited from making payments to the Venezuelan government or to PDVSA. 
This move has prompted significant debate over the success or failure of the sanctions campaign to date, as well as the degree to which Washington is pursuing a genuine normalization of relations with Caracas. How much has been relaxed, and where do you think the administration is going to go from here? This is a great question. So I'll briefly describe the framework that we have to give some context to the listeners. There's a few different categories of sanctions that were placed on the regime. The first category is the targeted sanctions, what we refer to as the specially designated nationals or SDN list. So these are individuals that have been targeted for corruption, human rights abuses, anti-democratic actions. And as it stands, there's over 112, I think, people, maybe 111 now, and around eight entities. This includes Nicolas Maduro himself. It includes Celia Flores, Delcy Rodriguez, the sort of worst of the worst. Then there's the financial prohibitions, which limits access to the U.S. financial market. It puts limitations on purchasing national debt, et cetera. The third category is the category that people are most often referencing when we talk about sanctions in Venezuela. That's the major sectoral sanctions against oil and gold. And then finally, there's the blocking and freezing of assets of the Maduro regime as a whole. So in general, what's still there? The good news is that most of those sanctions are still in place, despite the messaging from the Biden administration, which makes it sound like we're always just a day or two away from removing those sanctions. The Biden administration, to its immense credit, has not actually replaced most of this architecture. To date, they've removed one person, Eric Malpica Flores, who's a nephew of Celia Flores, from the specially designated nationals list. That was done to induce the regime to restart the Mexico negotiations. They've provided two general licenses, both to Chevron, which you've mentioned, which was also an inducement to negotiate as well as a reward for the regime agreeing to authorize a humanitarian aid agreement, which by the way, they have since deauthorized despite the Biden administration relicensing Chevron. And then they've given these things that they call comfort letters. Those aren't quite general licenses, but they essentially say, if you do this, we're going to look the other way. Don't worry, you're not going to be a target of OFAC. And so they've done that for other oil companies, any in Repsol, they've done it for some debt renegotiations, et cetera. The issue with where the Biden administration is going, I think, falls into two categories. The first is the policy shift. So fundamentally, the Trump administration's approach here was we will remove sanctions in exchange for a change in behavior by the regime. The Biden administration has decided to instead remove sanctions as an attempt to induce a change in behavior of the regime. And that's a fundamental difference. The problem with that is that we're not really being clear on our expectations. So when we wanted to get the regime to the table to negotiate at Mexico, we removed Eric Malpica Flores from the SDN list. That didn't work, so we sent our ambassador to meet face-to-face with Maduro, which is a major concession. That didn't work, so we licensed Chevron. And so now the regime is, quote, at the table, but they're not negotiating in good faith. They're, for example, passing new NGO laws that essentially criminalize being in an NGO, and they've had political persecution against many of the primary opposition candidates. And so the fact that we have not imposed penalties for that and that we're continuing to license Chevron, even though the original purpose of licensing them is now defunct, it shows a lack of resolve. It sort of reminds me of President Obama and the Syria red line. The second reason it's a problem is that where the Biden administration has been more active in general is the reduction of pressure as a whole. So it might not have been the reduction of massive sanctions, 
but they've done things like provided presidential pardons to Venezuelan criminals. They've supported the end of the interim government. They have not overseen a reinstitution of the multilateral effort on Venezuela. So all of those things are reducing external pressure in a critical way that even if they're not rolling back major sanctions, that has a massive impact on giving the Maduro regime more space to operate its criminal regime. Yeah, I'll talk about normalizing the relations with the regime on the part of U.S. allies in a minute. But sticking with this lifting of sanctions, the administration has emphasized that the relief granted so far could be easily snapped back into place if Maduro reneges on any promises or if no progress is made in the negotiations in Mexico. You've described how extensive the architecture is, and I imagine it's really not something that's very easy to turn around on a dime. So how easy is it really for them to be able to snap back? And is that a credible threat? It really depends on how they remove the sanctions. So as I said, there's the executive orders themselves. If you remove an executive order, politically, it's very hard to just re-implement that. First of all, because you would have to justify why you're re-implementing it, which means having to justify why you got rid of it in the first place. And that can be really, really challenging. If you provide a general license, typically those are licenses that are provided over a certain period of time. You can decide not to renew that general license. The problem, however, is again, as we're seeing in the Chevron case, the Biden administration just isn't holding the regime accountable. If they were, then Chevron would not have been relicensed. You know, they they made the bet. They said, we'll try to get the regime to negotiate. We'll try to get them to do this humanitarian aid deal. The regime isn't doing either. And yet, even knowing that, they relicensed Chevron. So there's the question of how easily we can remove sanctions, but there's also, or remove or re implement sanctions. But there's the other question of do we believe that this administration has the political will to do that? And that's where I think the answer is, is almost resoundingly no. So theoretically, you could re implement sanctions as long as you're not removing the executive order. They just don't have the political will. I think, though, it's kind of the wrong question. I mean, Maduro hasn't done enough for us to be asking this. The question really needs to be, how do we more effectively hold the regime accountable for its recent violations of the ongoing negotiation process? So we should be talking about doing more rather than doing less. Some of the U.S.'s initial overtures to Caracas last spring appear to have been prompted with the motivation to try to get more oil to market as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and replacing Russian crude with other sources of oil. But you mentioned a few minutes ago the current state of the Venezuelan oil sector, which is pumping in this month or last month around 700,000 barrels a month, which is a huge decline from its peaks in the early days of the Maduro regime or even the last few days of the Chavez regime. So is this actually a viable strategy to get uh, Venezuelan crude to market if their whole industry is somewhat collapsed? No. I mean, this is what I would call an, an excuse, not a reason. First, it's a matter of principle, right? We shouldn't be trading one evil dictator for another evil dictator. What we should be doing is thinking about American energy independence from all of these evil dictators. As you mentioned, we sort of, this idea that we can, quote, just turn the oil faucets back on, that's not how it works, right? We learned that lesson from Iraq. And part of the reason why we haven't fully collapsed the Venezuelan 
oil industry with our sanctions, which was an intentional decision, is because we know that the Venezuelans are going to need to benefit from their oil revenue once there's a democratic transition in order to finance their reconstruction, right? So we need for them to be able to be producing. But even in the current state, so 700,000 barrels per day, most of that is going to China and Cuba, right? So after their payoffs, they have about 200,000 barrels. That's somehow going to replace the, whatever it is, 11 million barrels per day plus from Russia. It's nonsensical. And even at its height in Venezuela, they were only producing 3 million barrels. And that's going to take decades, even in the best of circumstances. I disagree with the principle because it's just trading dictators, but I also just disagree with the practicality of it. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago that beyond relief or sanctions relief, the administration and other players are lessening their diplomatic pressure on the regime. We seem to be observing a global trend where countries are quietly moving to normalize relations with the regime. In I think it was in January, Spain sent a new ambassador. A new ambassador has been accredited in Madrid as well. So what risks does this growing international rapprochement with Maduro pose for the negotiations? And how can the international community continue to apply credible diplomatic pressure if they're normalizing their relations with the regime? Yeah, here it gets really complicated because multilateralism really does matter. It's a critical component, both of the external pressure, but also of the internal pressure, right? Having countries that are aligned with the Venezuelan opposition that can provide them the resources that they need to fight for democracy, that can provide them with the humanitarian assistance that they need as well. And for whatever reason, and however unusually, the Trump administration really did have an exceptionally multilateral policy, at least as it related to Venezuela. Now, the reality is different today, not just because the Biden administration has been much less multilateral in its approach to Venezuela, but also because the world is different. We have far more leftist governments in the region. We're seeing, you know, Lula and Petro, who are the leaders of Brazil and Colombia, respectively, supporting, in some sense, the Maduro regime, whereas before, Brazil and Colombia were strong allies for the Venezuelan opposition. So part of this is that it's not just that the United States hasn't been strong enough in rallying people together. It's also that the, the people themselves have changed. That being said, we do have some interesting new opportunities. First of all, I think Chile is a really interesting example. This is the one country in the region that has had a consistent policy towards Venezuela, despite the shifts in government. There is a more left-wing ruler, but he's very principled in his foreign policy approach. He continues to support the Venezuelan opposition. And I think somebody like him might be an interesting interlocutor. He has a strong leftist tradition, but he's very strong in supporting the Venezuelan opposition as well. During the Trump administration, we had the Lima Group, which is a basically group of nations in the Western Hemisphere that were all committed to a democratic transition. We had a highly functional organization of American states under Secretary General Luis Almagro that cared deeply about Venezuela. We had something called the Rio Treaty, which was invoked for the first time since September 11th, a sort of collective defense operation for the Western Hemisphere akin to NATO in Europe. 
there are different things that we can be thinking about in terms of re-implementing that multilateralism. Now, why does it matter? It matters because Maduro cares. Maduro cares about his international reputation. Maduro cares about the case against him in the International Criminal Court. And if we want to make sure that he is held accountable, if we want to make sure that he negotiates in good faith, we need to understand our points of leverage. And as the international community has implemented less pressure on the Maduro regime, that has made our sanctions even more critical as a piece of leverage against the regime to force them to negotiate. Let's take a step back for a minute and look at the future of U.S.-Venezuela policy. Should the planned 2024 elections come to pass and result in an illegitimate victory for Maduro, something that most observers expect will be the likely scenario. How should the U.S. recalibrate its approach? You talked a minute ago about perhaps re-implementing this strong multilateral leverage. And what role will sanctions play in a post-2024 election strategy? Well, I'm glad you're asking about this now because one of the key things here is we need to consider this today, not just in 2024. And I worry that some of this is kind of pushing the ball down the road. The chances the election will be free and fair in 2024 is literally 0%. And the reason we know that is because there was an EU electoral observation mission that was sent to Venezuela, and they came up with a variety of recommendations. I think it was about 23 as to things that the Venezuelan regime would need to do differently for elections to be considered legitimate. And these are things, some of them are things that you can only observe the day of. Most of them are things that would need to have started 12, 18, 24 months prior to an election. It's things like making sure that civil society has a role to play, that there's not oppression against political candidates, that there's a free media that can um, access all of the candidates. And so we know that those things not only don't exist, but that in fact, over the last six months have actually gotten worse. So we know that they're not going to be free and fair. So what does that mean that we need to do now? So first, we need to define what an acceptable outcome would look like in 2024. So this is the second major split between the Biden administration and the Trump administration's foreign policy. In the Trump administration, the way I describe it is elections are like pregnancy. They're either free and fair or they're not, right? You're not a little bit pregnant. You're not a little bit free and fair. The Biden administration has a different approach. They believe that there should be incremental change. Essentially, it should be more free and it should be more fair. The issue with that is it isn't necessarily clear how much freer and how much fairer is acceptable. So, for example, if rather than persecuting all political candidates, they only persecute 50 percent, technically, that's more free and more fair. So is that sufficient? The problem is this approach it gives a Maduro too much wiggle room. The other thing we need to be doing is we need to simultaneously hold the regime accountable as it fails to uphold its obligations. I agree with the Biden administration that we also need to reward good behavior because we'll need to sow trust with the Maduro regime. But the issue that I'm seeing is, as I mentioned before, there's this NGO law that was just passed that basically criminalizes being a member of civil society. That's something that has a direct implication on whether or not the elections in 2024 will be free and fair. There were recent threats of an arrest warrant against Juan Guaido, which caused him to flee Venezuela. Political persecution against political candidates is also something that makes an election unfree and unfair. So there need to have been consequences for these kinds of things, just as we consider having rewards for, for good behavior. And then finally, we need a plan B for when all of this fails. 
so that we haven't forced the Venezuelans to suffer for another year and a half. Because what I think people often forget, we're not measuring this just in time, right? Every day that we don't have a political transition in Venezuela, that's more Venezuelans dying. That's more Venezuelans catching preventable disease. That's more Venezuelans being forced into labor or sexual exploitation, being malnourished, being forced to cross these dangerous borders to to get to other countries. So there's a daily human cost here that if we just say wait until 2024, it's obviously not a very human-centric policy. Yeah, waiting till 2024 doesn't seem like a very human-centric policy, but it almost seems to me that the administration is not even looking to 2024, might even be looking to 2025. I agree with you that the conditions for the upcoming presidential election, if it's actually even held, I mean, Maduro still hasn't fixed a date, but that those are definitely not going to be free and fair under any definition that you could imagine. So is this really an acknowledgement that these upcoming elections are not going to work and therefore the opposition and the international community needs to think about what they can do for 2025, where the country will hold congressional and local and state governorship elections? The one positive thing about the 2024 elections, I don't view them in any way as a means to an end, meaning I don't think that they will in any case be be free and fair. But I also don't know that that's necessarily the point of them here. I mean, one of the critical things that was missing in the Trump administration's foreign policy, at least as of 2020, it was certainly there in 2019, was a continuation of the internal pressure in Venezuela. There were a few different reasons for that. I mean, how often can people go out and protest in the streets if they can't access their own food, right? Or if they're worried about being murdered. So these are all legitimate concerns. There was also, of course, COVID that reduced the ability of people to go out and protest. One of the interesting new changes, you know, we mentioned that we now have more leftist governments, which may make multilateralism a little bit more challenging on this front. There's also not an interim government anymore. On its face, this is, I think, problematic because it was a great way of organizing. It was a great way of creating external pressure by having other countries recognize the interim government. But I try to be an optimist in my political thinking. And one of the opportunities that this poses is for the opposition to focus more internally on ideas of how to mobilize the people and how to serve as a credible alternative to the Maduro regime. I think in some cases, the interim government ended up getting too focused on the sort of shadow bureaucracy components and not enough on the mobilization component. So what these elections, and at least the primaries, which hopefully will be happening this year, will do is it gives the opposition an opportunity to be mobilizing people and to show that they can mobilize. That might be increasing the internal pressure on the regime. What we need to avoid is a sort of reverse of what happened in the Trump administration, where we had only external pressure and no internal pressure. We're now facing the potential of having only internal pressure and no external pressure. And that's why I think the Biden administration and and our allies need to be doing more to exert the maybe more limited leverage that they have, but make sure that they're pushing on that so that we can have a balance between internal and external. That's the only formula that's going to get us to be successful to see Venezuela into a democratic transition. Carrie, sanctions are a tool that's often used to confront authoritarians the world over, not just Venezuela, but in other parts of the globe. 
And in our region, Nicaragua stands out as another consolidated dictatorship, but one which has not been subject to the kinds of sanctions and pressure seen in Venezuela. What lessons can we draw from the Venezuelan experience for constructing an effective sanctions regime against the Ortega Murillo government? I actually think the the best question, and, and this is sort of me evangelizing about another issue that I care deeply about, is what lessons can we draw from experiences with Venezuela for constructing an effective policy against countries like, for example, El Salvador and Mexico? So why do I say that? In some cases, and Nicaragua is an example of this, I don't want to say they're past the point of no return, but they are already fully in sort of dictatorial mode and have been for quite some time. What I think we learned from Venezuela, specifically from Nicolas Maduro, is what are the signs and signals? What are the trigger points that show democratic backsliding? And how can we try to stop that when we still have a moment to influence it versus when the regime is already fully entrenched? And so I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn about things that are being done in, in El Salvador and Mexico that we should be applying to those countries that started with Nicolas Maduro in 2013 and 2014 and 2015. As it relates to Nicaragua specifically, one of the key lessons that the Venezuela case shows us is that sanctions are a critical and necessary part of this, but they're not sufficient. And we need to have a comprehensive approach that also supports the Nicaraguan people, not just in terms of messaging, but in terms of operational support. Humanitarian aid is great, but humanitarian aid provides subsistence. What's really needed is an ability to support the people. In Venezuela, what we did was we provided VPNs and access to digital wallets so that they were able to operate. This is something that I think is really important for us to consider in the context of Nicaragua and other countries that have already fallen victim to not just democratic backsliding, but we're now in sort of full dictatorship mode. Carrie, thanks very much. Is there something that we didn't cover? Is there any other issue you'd like to raise? No, I think, first of all, I'm so grateful for you focusing on this. This is the largest refugee crisis in the Western Hemisphere. This is central to uh, great power competition as well because of the role of China and, and Russia and Iran. Transnational criminal organizations have a massive role to play in Venezuela and threatening some of their borders. And then there's obviously human rights violations that abound every day. And so whether your focus is security-based or human-based, this is something that people should care about. And I really appreciate everything that you and, and CSIS are doing to emphasize this ongoing tragedy. Thanks for joining us today on 35 West. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for this week's edition of 35 West. We hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes.